0: Well, the time has come for us to open the book of Revelation. (laughs) Hallelujah. And uh, we are starting today. If you're here for the first time, you've timed it perfectly. We are starting a new series today, and it's called Blessed. And uh, the reason that it's called Blessed is because the book of Revelation starts with the promise of a blessing, and it finishes with the promise of a blessing. It says, blessed In verse 1 verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then at the end of Revelation we read these words in chapter 22 verse 7, look I am coming soon, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this book. So I believe that as we study this book together, that we are going to be blessed if we hear these words and we do what they say. So uh, I'm going to read to you the first eight verses of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. It's an easy one to find in your Bible because it's the last book in the Bible. Uh, So just go to the end uh, at Revelation. And I'm going to read to you uh, verses 1 to 8. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, and the, said the Lord God, he, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. For many our approach to the book of Revelation has been singularly to avoid it like the plague <laughs> or to argue over it and its interpretation. As a young Christian who was brought up in church I was raised on charts and interpretations and books and scary films and uh, about this book and in, in many Ways with teaching that I think was way off the mark. Now, you may have certain views of Revelation and uh, approaches to this book, but I am asking that we all come to it with a renewed sense of humility as we explore it, this autumn term. This is a book that is rich in encouragement and hope and awe and the challenge to follow Jesus, come what may. It was written to evoke worship, to evoke confidence and anticipation and hope in those who heard it read to them. And I think and believe that as we read it and study it together, we'll be moved to worship God. We will be moved to see and to follow Jesus Christ with greater clarity and awe. And we will be moved to endure in difficult and challenging circumstances And to have confidence that God is on the throne and God is in control. Now, the book that I'm going to use to accompany this, if you want some background reading, and for which I have used as a hook to this series, is a book called Blessed. And it's by Nancy Guthrie. If you want it, it's quite accessible, it's quite readable. If you want to read this book alongside the series, then I encourage you to order it and uh, to, to get it for yourself. It's called Blessed by Nancy Guthrie. And in this book, she says, Revelation wasn't written to entertain or to set out a timeline for the future or to satisfy our curiosity about when Christ will return. Revelation was written to fortify Christians to live in the world, enduring its harsh treatment and alienation with a firm confidence that this world is not all there is and that, in fact, what may seem like defeat is going to give way to victory. Daryl Johnson states, No other book of the Bible presents the gospel as clearly and as powerfully as the last book does. In no other book of the Bible do we see Jesus as clearly and compellingly as we do in this last book. Revelation is not a crystal ball revealing esoteric secrets that enable one to escape the harsh realities of life on earth. But it is a down-to-earth manual on how to be a disciple of Jesus, facing the harsh realities of life on the earth. In particular, how to do this the way that Jesus did it and does it. So the way we're going to do it this autumn term is we're going to be teaching here on a Sunday, on Sunday mornings, and live streaming as well. We're going to encourage, if you want, to read this book But also, we're doing something slightly different this term in that we're bringing all our community groups together on a Tuesday evening, starting this Tuesday at 7.30 for six weeks. So what we're going to do, we're going to bring all our groups in to the building, and we're going to chat about Revelation. Uh, And if you're in a small group, you can sit with your group. If you don't come to a small group, this would be a great time for you to dip in. So come along on Tuesday and we will help you join a group or we'll set up different groups and look after you. And this week, we're even gonna provide some delicious cake for you and coffee. And tea, and it's going to be a great evening. We're going to do a little bit of worship, but we're going to be (coughs) digging into Revelation, explaining what we're talking about. And we're going to be modelling how to do a small group around Revelation. We're going to do it till half term. So we'd love to see you there starting this Tuesday. You can sign up online, which would help us with our numbers and our planning. So that's the format that we're going to follow as we go through the autumn term. We're going to do 12 weeks on Revelation. So this is, this book, it's a letter... It's a prophecy and it's a revelation. And I want to think about three things this morning. I want to think about the persecution of the church that was uh, being addressed in this uh, book. I want to talk about perspective and gaining perspective in life. And I want to talk about praise. The first thing is persecution. John writes these words in, in uh, in Revelation 1, 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth this was a letter this was a letter written by John a letter to seven churches seven is a very significant number that will come up again and again and again and again in revelation that we'll look at it's uh, to seven churches and and this is a sign of completeness, but it is a representation of the multitude of issues faced by the churches down the ages. There's things addressed in these seven churches, from uh, persecution to apathy to immorality to, uh, to compromise, uh, to, to them being uh, tired, to them being apathetic and lukewarm. And there's something of every church in these uh, letters, and the way, in this letter, in the way that the church is addressed. So Nancy Guthrie, Guthrie writes about this. She says, by addressing seven churches, John is saying that the letter is written to the church as a whole, to Christians throughout the centuries, and each of the seven churches addressed represents struggles and victories that are present in the church in every generation. So it's important, though, to think that this is a letter to first century Christians, because a lot a lot of the fanciful interpretations of Revelation that we've seen applied over the years simply do not wash. This book cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them in the first century. This was a letter, this was a letter written to seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey. And people have read all kinds of things out of Revelation. They've read secret codes and references to world wars, and the European Union, and Monetary Union, and the Catholic Church, and the fall of the Soviet Empire, and Apache helicopters, and tanks, and references to vaccines, and modern day political leaders, and world economic systems, and computers, and the, uh, and the changing ages that we're living through. But primarily, this was a prophetic encouraging letter to seven churches facing persecution under the Roman Empire in the first century. And we have to read it in that light. And uh, it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So these Christians, if we're looking at the sense of persecution that the church was facing when John wrote this book of Revelation, they they had suffered tremendous persecution in that first century under, under Nero and Vespasian. And Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Peter and Paul, leaders of the church, were crucified. Timothy, one of the pastors in Ephesus, in this area, was murdered. And then things got even worse as Domitian became emperor. He ordered all citizens to worship him as Lord and God. And he called himself the everlasting king. And all citizens were to declare, Caesar Curious, Caesar is Lord. And as someone who refused to do this, the aging apostle John was banished to the island of Patmos, 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And he was writing, as we read these words, he was writing to Christians who were facing terrible persecution, who were at times tempted to compromise their faith, to align themselves with the Roman Empire and its demands. They were feeling the pressure to fit in with Roman society and its norms and its rules. And they were facing, if they did not, they were facing persecution and death, murder of their leaders, exclusion from society if they didn't toe the line. It felt like they were losing, like they were on the losing side. And John pulled back this curtain for them in this letter, in this prophecy and this revelation. And he showed them, he wanted to show them who was really in charge, who is really in control over the world events. Yeah. He showed them in this letter the cosmic battle that was taking place. He pointed them back to Jesus, to the lamb that was slain. Yeah. And so we don't look, the Bible says, at the troubles that we can see now, rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. So this is a letter to Christians that are facing persecution, and it is ultimately to encourage them, to give them courage in the face of tremendous Roman persecution under the terrible Vespasian. And we cannot underline enough the importance of encouragement to believers who are under the course. I, was, uh, I went running uh, on Friday. as running up <clears throat> Plymbridge. And uh, when I say running, it's probably the term would be waddling. <laughs> and uh, if ever you've seen Phoebe Buffet and Friends trying to run... You've got a picture in your mind already. I think Rachel said it was a cross between Kermit the Frog and the $6 million man. So I'm running, I'm waddling up the Blimbridge uh, Valley, and this cyclist whizzes past me in his Lycra, a mammal, middle-aged man in Lycra. And he whizzes past me, and he shouts out, top running, mate. <laughs> top running, mate. Now, I don't think that he was being sarcastic, maybe he was, <laughs> maybe he was laughing at me, but he was encouraging me. And as, as I'm like sweating my way up, waddling, doing my Phoebe Buffet, uh, top running mate, and as he said those words, this complete stranger that I have never met, whizzing by in his Lycra outfit, I felt my chest puff up a little. <laughs> yeah, top running mate. <laughs> My stride lengthened just a few centimetres. And for that moment, I was Mo (laughs) Farah. Pounding my way up Plymbridge Valley. (coughs) Top running, mate. Just a few words of encouragement from a complete stranger. And I thought for a moment, isn't it amazing what encouragement does for people? Just a couple of words of encouragement. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. I can do this. Now John is writing to this church, he's writing to people who are facing the loss of their leaders, facing tremendous persecution, fear. They're compromising some of them. We better just fit in a little here with the Roman Empire and with this Caesar is Lord stuff. And, and so he writes to the churches and he encourages them and he challenges them. And that's what this is. This is a letter of encouragement. This is but people are being persecuted. But what John does then is he starts to give them a sense of perspective. This is, the, the word starts with, the, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The, the Greek is the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. This is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, you might think of the end of the world, kind of a, a, a kind of horror movie, kind of... Uh, a a tragedy, apocalyptic. But the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, that's what this says, uh, uh, it's not that something terrible is going to happen, but this is apocalyptic literature. It represents something that's very meaningful to first century Christians. The word simply means unveiling, a revelation, an unveiling of something, like pulling back a curtain in the theatre or taking a lid off a box and showing off something. The lifting of the cover, the pulling back of the curtain, the opening up, the the breaking through of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how this book starts. And Jesus used exactly the same word in Greek when he said in, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them. You have apocalypsed them to little children. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him, apocalypse him. When you read a book, it's important that you read it with the knowledge of the genre that you are reading. Fiction is one type of literature. Non-fiction is another type of literature. Science fiction is another type of fiction, and you would read a work of science fiction differently to the way that you would read a book of fiction or a book of non-fiction or a piece of poetry or a piece of different type of prose. And so it's important as we come into this book and as we read it together and as we study it that we recognize that this is apocalyptic literature, which is a type of writing. And the way that apocalyptic literature works, and it's not just biblical literature, there's a whole genre of it in in early Jewish writings as well, is that it it is a vivid, pictorial, symbolic type of writing. It's like a a political cartoon. It is striking in its imagery and its symbolism. It gives us a fresh perspective. It hijacks our intellect, and it touches us at a deep level. It gives us that sense of perspective. And symbolism is a a very important part of apocalyptic writing. So with broad brushstrokes and pictures and images and symbols and numbers, reading Revelation is like studying an Impressionist painting. Or looking at a political cartoon, we will see beasts and we will see dragons and we will see uh, the sun and the moon and the stars and we'll see very strange creatures, And we will see fire and earthquakes and cosmic battles between angels and demons and the lion and the slain lamb. And we will see pictures that are vivid and symbolic in what they mean. And Eugene Peterson, the old pastor, said, I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. To revive my imagination. And what makes Revelation so challenging Daryl Johnson, the commentator, says, is to understand and then to live is the very thing that gives it its transforming power, namely its rich symbolism and imagery, which admittedly can border on the grotesque. But as difficult as some of the symbolism and imagery is, and we'll we'll wrestle our way through it in this autumn term, as difficult as as it is, the underlying message of Revelation is not difficult to understand. The story of told is told of some college students, some bible college students who went to play basketball uh, at a local school after hours and so they they would go these uh, seminary students and they would they would play some basketball and and so the caretaker of the school w- with the gym would would open it up for them and he 'd stay behind and and as these college students played basketball the the caretaker would borrow one of their Bibles and he would sit and read it during the time that they were playing basketball and sit reading and reading. And they were intrigued, these Bible college students, I wonder what the caretaker is reading. So one day, one of them said, what are you reading while we play basketball? And he said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And they all laughed. They said, oh, our, our professor said it's, it's fairly impossible to understand. He said, can you explain to us what it means? And they were teasing him a little and laughing and he leaned forward and he looked to the left and, he, he, and the right and he said, it means that Jesus is going to win. That's what it means. It means that Jesus is going to win. Yeah. That Jesus has already won. That Jesus has already overcome. Yes. That he is on the throne. That he is the lamb that was slain. And that is the underlying message to these early Christians unto us, to give us a, a sense of perspective, to fix our eyes on what is unseen, when all around that we see is transient and changing and uncertain. Yeah. Things are not as they seem. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already overcome. And this is a visual medium. It's a series of visions that John is sharing. It's not a chronological book that goes from one scene to the next. You will see it as we go through uh, that John repeatedly says, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. And he says, I saw 40 times in Revelation. revelation, I saw. It's It's a series of windows, Revelation. A window opens up for us to look through and to see what God is doing and to see a scene of heavenly reality. And then that window closes and another window opens and and John says, and then I saw. It's not a chronological movement from A to B, but it is a series of camera angles, a series of perspectives that help us to see from a different angle what God is doing in the world and the cosmic battle that is taking place. You know when you go up in an airplane and you rise above the clouds and you look out across the cotton wool clouds underneath and the... And you can see all of a sudden where underneath has been gray skies and rainfall. As you come up, you see the sunshine, you see the clouds, you're above it, you get a different perspective from an airplane. And it's like that as we start to read Revelation, that our eyes are fixed on the heavenly. Our eyes are fixed on the lamb that was slain. And I am sure that as we go through this book, that we will be drawn to worship God. We will be drawn to worship Jesus. That we'll see him in all of his glory and all of his splendor. That even as we face difficult circumstances and challenging times and moving cultures, that we still see that the lamb is on the throne, that Jesus reigns, that Jesus wins, that Jesus has overcome. And, uh, and we'll get that sense of perspective and that true sense of worship. Things are not always as they seem. You can't always see things from the heavenly perspective. But why was it? Why was it important to get this heavenly perspective for the first century believers and, and for all of us believers since? And that brings us to the third thing. The first, the first thing is, is this sense of, is this sense of uh, persecution, this letter that was written. The second thing is the sense of uh, perspective. And the fact that this is a, this is a revelation, this is an apocalypse. And the third thing is the sense of praise. That, and John starts and, and takes us through a place of doxology of praise. This vision focuses on who Jesus is from the very start. It, it, it paints him in such vivid colours. We read in verse 5 that he is the faithful witness. That's what John says to the, the one who is the faithful witness. The, the Greek is martyr, martous, which we get the word martyr. And it just meant to bear witness. The the Greek word martus meant to bear witness. But in the early century, so many Christians gave their lives bearing witness that martyr became synonymous with giving your life. Not bearing witness, but giving your life. And what John says is that he is the most faithful martyr. He is the faithful witness. He is the one that has gone first. As he looks out at those that are giving their lives from Paul and Peter and Timothy and everyday Christians are been dragged to the lions and are being thrown out of their homes and their businesses shut down, he says, Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the first martyr. He is the one that has laid down his life for us so that we can follow him. And for this church, that's so important to remember that Jesus is the ultimate faithful witness. Witness, He is, John says, the firstborn from the dead. Yeah. He is the first to have died and rose again yeah. and, f- and made it through death. He is the one who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. The way that the Lamb triumphs throughout Revelation is through his suffering and his death. He is the Lamb that was slain. He is the first one to go through death and to come out the other side. He is the one for us to follow. The Christians are following their Lord, John says. You're following the true Curios. You're following the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a faithful martyr. He is the firstborn from among the dead. We are not following Caesar Curios. We are following the Lord Jesus Curios. The one who is Lord, the one who is a faithful witness, the one who is the firstborn from among the dead and John says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is over every Caesar, over every king, over every queen. Domitian claimed to be God. He claimed to be the everlasting Lord. He commanded his subjects to shout, Caesar is Lord. There was this empirical cult that was in place. And John reminds the believers and all believers down the ages that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. we have felt, have we not, the seismic shift of a change in sovereign this very week. And it was Boris Johnson who said, we almost thought that she was eternal, that she was immortal. But of course, Elizabeth is not. And Charles is not. And no earthly king is immortal or eternal in that sense. But we serve one, John reminds those early believers, and we must remember also in the shifting sands of time that we serve one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And for those of us who feel unsettled, who've never known anything but Queen Elizabeth II, many people have voiced this week she was our rock, she was... Our stability, she was the one unchanging thing that we have known in our life. Everything else changes, society has changed, Great Britain has changed beyond belief in these last decades. But the queen has always felt like this rock and this stay. But then she's gone and we feel lost, we feel unsettled, we feel anxious. And John says there is one who is even higher than the kings and the queens of this earth. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the faithful witness. He is the first martyr. He is the one who laid down his life so you could follow him in giving up your life. He is the one who was raised from the dead so that you know that if your're following him leads you even into death, you can follow him through to the other side into eternal life. And John is given this perspective, which leads to praise this doxology of who Jesus is and what he's done and why we should follow him. Because Jesus said, did he not, in his own words, as he prepared to leave this earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations. The apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ reveals the truth. It gives us perspective And what is really going on? Jesus wins. Jesus is already winning. Jesus is already ruling, even if there is opposition. And when facing persecution from the Roman Empire, this is important to remember, he is not an arbitrary ruler, he is not a distant despot, his is a sacrificial love. And John says he has loved us, he has loved us, and he has freed us from our sins by his blood. We sang when I was growing up to him who has loved us and washed us from sin. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That was from Revelation. And the Greek word for washed is very, very similar to the Greek word for freed. And there is a sense perhaps that was miscribed. But whether it's washed or freed, he did both. To him who has loved us and freed us from our sins. To him who has loved us and washed us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us a kingdom kingdom. And he has made us priests. That's what John is writing to these believers. He has made us a kingdom. And he has made us priests. Now they would think there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in Revelation. This is bathed. This imagery is bathed in the Old Testament. and, uh, And those early believers would have read it and heard it in that light. And they would have gone back to Exodus 19 as we know it. Where... God speaks to his people and says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and you will be a holy nation. And, uh, and our minds go back to 1 Peter 2 verse 9 where we hear you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation belonging to God. You are the place where God saves. You are the place where God reigns. That's you. You are priests. You are God's nation. You are God's people. And John is reminding them, even as you succumb to, live in amongst this Roman oppression, the all-powerful Roman Empire, you are, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are people that belong to God. And we ultimately, and first of all, belong to God. We are citizens of heaven. This is, as the old... Uh, spiritual said this is not my home I am just passing through my citizenship is in heaven first and foremost we are called through this book through revelation and I hope we get it to have a very high view of God but also to have a high view of ourselves to let people feel the weight of who we are the Romans may call you detritus They may exclude you and they may mock you. They may even kill you. But you are kings and you are priests and you are ruling with Christ. No matter what society does to us or says about our faith or no matter which direction culture moves in, we are God's people. We are his priests. We are his representatives. We are those who reach out with the kingdom of God. We are the ones who tell people about Christ, who represent him on this earth. Look, says John, look, open your eyes over and over, he says, look. Raise your eyes again, raise your vision above what you're seeing. Raise, lift your eyes up and look, here's a revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to unveil him, I'm going to reveal him, I'm going to show him to you afresh. I want you to change your perspective. I want you to turn that perspective into a place of praise and adoration and confidence of who you are and whose you are. You may be up against it. You may be squeezed. You may be counting the cost of your faith. But look, John says, look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. And there is throughout this book an orientation towards the end. He's coming again, he's coming with the clouds, he will return. Look. Now, there were a lot of arguments when I was growing up over Revelation and the end times. And you had to declare whether you were premillennialist or postmillennialist, or pre tribulation or post tribulation, and your views on the rapture and the end times. Now, thankfully, a lot of that has gone, and a lot of it has dissipated, but sometimes this has been replaced by a complete lack of reference to the end times and to the fact that Jesus is coming again, and he will judge all peoples, and for some, for many, his coming will represent a time of mourning as they represent and they face the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. This world is not my home. I am passing through. There are no vague universalist hopes in Revelation. Jesus is coming again, John says. And he will judge the living and the dead. And there will be those who mourn his coming because they have rejected him. And no other book paints in such vivid pictures the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. And the choice that is to be made to follow Jesus. There's no vague universalist hope here. This book of Revelation will not dodge these questions, but will raise us up to the highest heavens and also show us the depths of hell. And God speaks as John uh, opens and finishes his prologue. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The vision that John starts with, that starts with Jesus saying, I am the first and the last. Chapter 1, verse 17 of Revelation. I am the first and I am the last. And this Revelation finishes with the same words in chapter 22 and verse 13. Closes with God and Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the first, and I am the last. I am the beginning, and I am the end. Alpha, our course that we run, but it's also here in this book. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. I am the A, I am the Z. I am the whole of time. And here, beginning, I am the beginning and the end, it means I am the source. The, the Greek word is Asha, from which we get archetype. I am the first of a kind. I am the source of all life. Before life was, I was. I am the beginning. I am the source. I am the origin. And I am the end. I am the telos. I am the destination. I am the purpose of life. I am where it all ends up. I am the ultimate. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the alpha and I am the omega. I am outside of time and I am outside of space. And in the transience of time, it is good to know and to serve a God who is the beginning and the end. He is the one where we will end up. He is our ultimate purpose in life. He is our ultimate destination. And God says, I am almighty. I have all power. I have all power over every sovereign, over every every nation, over every empire. I am almighty. And this doxology, this praise, this heavenly perspective is from a place of pain and suffering for John and his fellow believers. Remember John is exiled on Patmos for his faith and uh, he's writing to believers who are facing death and persecution and so the praise that he's calling them to, it's not some kind of lightweight praise, it's not praise when everything is going well, it's praise in the midst of the trial. It's praise in the midst of the trouble. It's praise in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the loss. It's praise that's got grit. It's praise that's got edge. It's praise that is revelatory, that fixes our eyes on Christ. And Eugene Peterson writes in his book on Revelation, the Hallelujah Banquet, He says, a few years ago on a bright spring Sunday, I met a man I had not seen in years at the entrance to our sanctuary, to our church. Jimmy, what in the world are you doing here? It's great to see you, but what made you choose today of all days? And Jimmy said to Eugene, the pastor, he said, I woke up this morning feeling great and I just had to say thank you. My business is doing great. My kids are great. This day is wonderful. And I had to say thank you to someone. And so he did, writes Eugene Peterson. He worshipped with us that day, and I haven't seen him since. I understand him being there that Sunday, but I also understand him not coming back. All of us know how to give thanks on spring Sundays when our kids are beautiful and our work is lovely and the Judas trees are blossoming, it's the other times that are difficult. If we are to live praising lives, robust lives of affirmation, we must live truly and honestly and courageously. We don't become praising people by avoiding or skipping or denying the pain and the poverty and the doubt and the guilt, but by entering into them, exploring them, minding their significance, embracing the reality of these experiences. We don't become praising people and true disciples by only praising God on the Sundays in spring when all is well with the world. This persecuted, hurting, Fearful church needed to praise God from this place to have a fresh revelation of who he is and what he's done and how he has suffered and how he now reigns supreme. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the Almighty. He is the King of Kings. He has has established this kingdom. He is coming again. He's coming with the clouds. And that is why praise is so exhilarating. It has nothing to do with slapping a happy face on a bad situation and grinning through it. It is fashioned deep within us, out of the sin and the guilt and doubt and lonely despair that nevertheless believes nevertheless praises, nevertheless sees Christ for who he is on the throne. And so a prayer as we open this series, a prayer for you, a prayer for me, and it is this, Lord, I need this revelation of who you are to do more than simply inform me. I need this revelation to move me I need this revelation of your eternity and your sovereignty to fill me with the courage to live in the light of it. I need this grace and peace to permeate, even define my life. I need for you to radically adjust my perspective about what is real, about what is real and who is worthy of my worship. Amen.